Okay, everybody, if you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Good to see all of you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. I heard on the uh, television that these are some of the hottest temperatures in 100 years. Well, you know what that means. That means that 100 years ago, it was just as hot as it is now. They're trying to tell us that we're setting records, and I, I think I've told you I'm old enough. When I was a teenager, the uh, newspapers had in big letters, uh, Ice Age coming, Ice Age. So to me, I believe that the, the ages of the earth uh, flow. You have some hot ages, and you have some Older ages or colder ages, I should say. Mark's, uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you this evening, asking you to help us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the good of your people and for the souls of men. On our time together this evening, in the name, said we never like to end our, our program, our broadcast, without inviting you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And then he says, if you'll repeat after me. And he's only doing what many, many other men are doing. Uh, a little prayer like, uh, Lord Jesus, I'm a, I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sins. And I'm asking you to save me for Jesus' sake. And so on, amen. And then Osteen says, if you prayed that prayer. This is bad English. I think. He said, if you prayed that prayer, we believe you got born again. He said, that's what we believe. Many others say, if you do that, and uh, I'm not picking on Osteen, there are lots, in fact, I would say the vast majority of the teachers that are on television and the pastors do that as a sinner's prayer. They say, regardless of what they're teaching or not teaching before, they say, we're going to ask you to repeat after me. And some of them will say, now, if you meant that, if you were sincere uh, and so on, then you're saved. Write us and tell us about, you know, your salvation and so on. 
Now, you just read a portion of Scripture with me from Luke's Gospel 8, verses 9 through 14. And this is the sinner's prayer right here in Luke chapter 18. This man who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, verse 13. Now, let's look at this very directly. I'm just going to give you a one, two, three, four, five. Should be easy to follow. First of all, you notice in verse 9, and we find that two men go to the temple to pray. They go to the temple to pray. So here's the first, the first question. To whom is this parable directed? Jesus says in verse 9 that he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Okay? So you, you have to keep that in mind as you go through this parable. Men who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, not only that, but they despised others. Now, at this point, how does that compare with Saul of Tarsus, who saw himself as the chief of sinners? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 he says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So Paul learned not to trust in himself. He learned that his righteousness was not entrusting in himself. So again, to whom is the parable directed? That's verse 9. Now, what this is saying, I believe, what verse 9 is saying those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, among other things, is they, these are people who think that they can make God their debtor. They, they can say certain things and agree to certain things, and God himself is in debt to them, and he's obligated to do certain things based on what they have confessed. So when they confess certain things, they expect a positive answer from God in every case. This says in verse 9 that these people despised others. That is, the people Christ has in mind when he tells this parable, those who trusted in themselves and despised others, they, they not only trusted in themselves, but they despised others. They not only thought much of themselves, but they thought absolutely nothing of others. The spiritual attitude that I think the Scriptures tell us to have is to give is exactly the opposite. In other words, here's what I think the Bible tells us to do as Christians. We ought to give the benefit of the doubt to others, and we ought to think nothing of ourselves. Instead, this man, he thinks everything of himself, and he despises others. You follow me? All right, now verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, it was not the hour of public prayer when they went up. The reason the Jews made so much of going up to the temple to pray was because God promised Solomon that when anyone went to the temple or prayed toward the temple, that he would hear them. For us, Christ is our temple. We approach the God of heaven always through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our sacrifice. He's our priest. He's our prophet. He is the temple for us. And he comes and dwells in us. Paul tells us that you are the temple of God. So now the temple is, we go through Christ 
and Christ comes into us. Christ is our temple. We approach God always through Him. Now, we should note that among the visible professed worshipers of God, there are good and bad. There are wheat and tares. There are the self-righteous and those who, whose righteousness is Christ. And this is what he's pointing out here. Two men went up to the temple. One of them is a Pharisee, and one of them is a publican. So, in the churches of the United States and the world, in every generation, there will always be wheat and tares, wise and foolish, sheep and goat, people who make professions of faith, and those who possess saving faith. So we have two different people here, two different men representing two different types of spiritual persons. The Pharisee went to the temple because it was a public place. And he was sure to be seen. And you know, Christ said of the Pharisees, all of their works they do to be seen of men. Okay? We should know that those who know nothing of the grace of God nevertheless keep up an external profession of faith. That's what this Pharisee is doing. He thinks he knows something about the grace of God, but Jesus is telling us and going to tell us that he doesn't. Nevertheless, he's a religious man. He keeps up a profession of religion. The publican goes there, as we're going to see, out of need, because the temple, said Isaiah in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, the Lord said through Isaiah, My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So the publicans going there to honestly and earnestly beseech God. The Pharisees going there because he wants to be seen of men and reinforce his religion. Of course, this teaches us that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, using these two examples, teaches us that he sees all who comes into his house and he knows why they are there. Okay, now let's look at the Pharisee. Verse 11. The Pharisee, it says, stood by himself. He stood by himself so as to be noticed. It seems that what was in his mind and what is in his heart is himself and not God's glory. Jesus has already told us what his platform is, what he's standing upon. That's back to verse 9, trusting in themselves that they were righteous and despising others. So he's told us that. You have to keep that in mind. So this man begins to tell the Lord what he's proud of. I remember years ago, I think it might have been... Uh, uh, Roy Acuff, I'm not sure, but one of them used to sign off his particular part of the Grand Ole Opry with, may the good Lord always be proud of you. <laughs> I don't know if you remember hearing that. Uh, that sounds good, but that is totally foreign to the attitude of a child of God according to the Scripture. So this man begins in verse 11 telling the Lord what he is proud of. And I want you to note now that you can be a highly moral and highly religious person and still be lost. So as he begins to talk to the Lord, he says that he tells the Lord that he's free from scandalous sins. Notice what he says. He says, I thank thee that I am not 
as other men are. And now he tells you his views of other men. Extortioners. Now, extortion is legal robbery. And it's a word that means somebody who deals fraudulently with others. Like if you charge your brother interest, what's the law of God forbade? Uh, or if you oppress your, uh, your debtors, or if you uh, oppress your tenants, if you had uh, people who paid you for rent or the use of your building or something. So he said, I'm not an extortioner. Secondly, he says, are unjust. Unjust. He means by this, I'm not unjust with any in any of my dealings, whether this is personal dealings or whether this is business dealings, I am straight up and down. I'm not unjust in these business dealings. I'm not an adulterer. No sense in elaborating on that. We know what that means. I'm not an adulterer. He says not only that, but he says I fast twice a week. The Jews fasted on Monday and on Thursdays. Those were the times of fasting. I fast not once, but twice a week. He said further, I am a tither. He says, I give 10% the, of the amount that was commanded by the law. And notice what he says. He says, I tithe of all that I possess. That's verse 12. See, the tithe wasn't just 10% of your money. If you read the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, it ends with bring ye all of the tithes into the storehouse. And that's literally a storehouse. That's the storehouse where you've, you've got food and you've got uh, meat and you've got other things. Bring these things into the storehouse. Not referring to the church or the temple, but into the storehouse, a literal storehouse. So he says, I'm not an extortioner. I don't practice legal robbery. I don't deal fraudulently with others. I don't uh, charge my brother's interest. I don't oppress my debtor's uh, I take advantage of them or any tenants. I'm not unjust in our personal dealings or my business dealings. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week. I'm a tither. I give 10% of all that I possess. Then he compares himself to other men, even as this publican, he says. So he thanks God that he's better than other men. Now the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. Paul warns us about comparing ourselves to other men. This is what he said. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. He goes on to say, But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. In other words, he's saying, I'm looking at myself, and I'm going to say more about this in just a moment. I'm looking at myself, and I'm saying, what am I doing? I'm not comparing myself with what somebody else is doing. And he said, when you compare yourself with somebody else, you're not wise. There are two issues that the Pharisee is ignorant of. Number one, he 
does not know, apparently, that the Lord will not deal with us based upon how we stack up against others. The Lord doesn't deal with us based upon how we stack up against others. Who would, uh, who would, who would he stack us up against? Well, it would have to be Christ. It would have to be Christ. So he doesn't deal with us based upon how we stack up against others. And number two, the major issue in view here is perfect goodness. Remember when that young man approached the Lord and said, Good master, what thing must I do? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, and that is God. So the major issue here is perfect goodness. There's not but one good person, and that's God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how good we are, we're not as good as God. Therefore, in terms of goodness, there's none good, no, not one. So this fellow's comparing himself to the, the publicans and to other men. We read there's not one good, no, not one, in Romans chapter 3. Remember that? Apparently, this Pharisee knew this publican. They may have been in the outer court together talking. Because this is what he was saying in his mind and in his heart, that Jesus knows what he's saying in his mind and in his heart. He might have known this publican. At least he knew this man was a publican. And it seems to me that he was as pleased with the publican's badness as he was with his supposed goodness. Why didn't he stand up there and pray for the publican? If you knew the publican was an extortioner, if you knew the publican was an adulterer, if you knew the publican was, uh, didn't fast like he should and didn't tithe and all that, why didn't he stand up there and pray for him? See, we're all guilty of doing that. We look at other people and we look at what they are doing and what they're not doing and we kind of commend ourselves because we don't do what they do. But remember, we're not to be comparing ourselves with ourselves. If you want a perfect standard, you could start with the law of God and you could finish with our Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law in every jot, in every tittle, in word, in thought, in deed. So I don't know why he didn't pray for the publican except that he's self-righteous. And apparently he thought the publican was guilty of everything that he was not guilty of. And this also shows us that Notwithstanding his going to the temple to pray, he knows nothing of his own sinfulness and of his need of blood redemption. He prayed often, he says here. He frequented the temple often. He tithed consistently, but he knew nothing of the salvation of the God of Israel. So now we've got to verse 13. Verse 13, the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, literally the sinner. Now, a publican was a tax collector, and they were detested by the Jews and others of other countries because many of them were dishonest in their collecting of taxes. If you didn't know but 50 cents, they'll tell you you owed a dollar. And they'd put 50 cents in their own pocket and give 50 cents to the Roman government, and then they'd get paid for cheating you. <laughs> so 
He, the publican, was not a popular guy. He was a person who was detested by many people, especially the Jews, because he collected, often he was a Jew, and he collected taxes from the Jews for the Roman government. Now, the publican, it seems to me, when he comes in that temple and when he is about to pray, that he's not aware of anyone else. As far as he knows, it's just he and God. He is standing alone before God, unlike the Pharisee who said, I'm not like other men. Oh, I might have been some others now. This publican back here that's in the back, I'm not him. He, was, he, he had his mind somewhere else. He didn't have his mind on the glory of God. But this publican is not aware of anybody else. He's just standing. He's in the presence of God. And he is full of conviction, and he's empty of all self-righteousness. And this evidence in number one, where did he stand? Verse 13, he stood afar off. He stood at the very end of the court. The Pharisee stood at the upper end of the court. And the publican kept himself at a distance because he felt unworthy to draw near to God at the upper part of the court. He apparently felt privileged to even be allowed in the temple. And this is further evidenced that, it says, that he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. That's what Jesus is telling this story now. Verse 13, he would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, much less his hands which they usually did when they were praying. They usually lifted up their hands when they were in the temple, lifted up in prayer. And, of course, this shows humiliation rather than pride. This shows lack of self-righteousness, lack of some type of religious boldness and courage. Uh, David said this at one point in his life. He said, innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head, therefore my heart fails me. Psalm 40, verse 12. So there was a time when David felt so bowed down by his sins that he said he couldn't even look up to heaven. That's where this publican is here. You remember when David numbered the people? I don't know if you know this, but God forbade the leaders of Israel to number the people because he didn't want them to feel that their power and success was in numbers. So he didn't want them to number the people. And one time David numbered the people. One reference in the Old Testament says that it was Satan who moved him to number the the people. But it tells us in 2 Samuel 24 verse 10 that no sooner had he done that that his heart smote him. He was smitten with guilt, and he couldn't draw near to God. He couldn't look up because his heart smote him about his sinful condition. This is the, this is the condition of this publican here. Now, in the third place, the fact that the publican was full of conviction and empty of all self-righteousness is evidenced in his words, the words of his petition. He said, God, be merciful merciful to me, a sinner. Now, number one, he acknowledges that mercy is with the Lord. 
He cannot earn it, not even. Now listen, this is important. He can't earn it, not even by doing what God commands him to do. You don't earn your righteousness by repenting and believing. Those are works of righteousness which we have done. And we read in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the renewing of the Holy Ghost and so on. Read that in Titus chapter 3. So even when we do what God tells us to do, even when we obey, we are wrong if we're taking any credit or thinking that anything in any, any act of obedience helps us on to God, helps us on to heaven. The publican here has a heart that's smiting him because of his sins, because he knows he is a sinner. We don't know. He might have been a very moral person. He may, not, he may have been one of the honest publicans. He may not have been cheating people. The pro- probably he didn't, or the Lord Jesus wouldn't use him as an example. But regardless, even if he's a good man and he goes to temple and he prays and he does all that, we cannot save ourselves by what we do even when we do what God tells us to do. He acknowledges that mercy is with the Lord. He can't earn it. Neither does he deserve it. Remember this now. Mercy that is deserved is not mercy. If you deserve it, you're not saved by mercy. If you can do anything for God to be merciful to you, then you're not saved by mercy. He confesses that he is in need of the mercy of God. He doesn't say, I, I need Mary, I need the church, I need the pope, I need the priest, I need the preacher. No, I need, I need something else. I need God. And he knows and he feels that he's a sinner who is totally dependent upon God's mercy. He's a sinner by nature, he's a sinner by practice, and he's been a sinner by choice. That is, he blames no one else for his sins. He doesn't say, uh, you know, I've got a problem because of the way I was raised by my parents. You might have a problem because of the way you were raised by your parents, but now you're a big boy now, and you're responsible for yourself before God. You're responsible to hear what His Word says and to do it. But you can't obligate Him to do something because you do it. He does make certain promises. And we don't want to throw those out the door. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But you have to keep in mind that Jesus is talking about people, as we saw in verse 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. The Pharisee never acknowledged himself to be a sinner. He didn't have that language uh, in, his, uh, in his prayer. Uh, this man understands that God, this publican, he understands that God is rightly and righteously angry with sin, and he would be righteous if he condemned him. Now, how do we know that? We know that by the word that he uses. See this word, merciful? Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word, hilaskomai, and you know what it means? It means propitiation. It means I need a, 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 a propitiation. Now, you remember the mercy seat? Remember the little square box that they made 
and it had two angelic creatures leaning like this with their wing. That mercy seat was called the propitiation. It's the same word. The mercy seat and propitiation translated by the same word in the New Testament. So he's saying, God, be my mercy seat. Expiate. You know what expiate means? It means atonement. To expiate. I need some, I need an atonement. I can't make up for what I am. I can't make up for what I've done. I cannot atone for my sin. Be merciful. Be a propitiation. Expiate my sins. Now here's the judgment that's rendered by the judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, referring to the publican, he went down to his house justified rather than the other, he says. The publican was justified, and the Pharisee, who did everything right religiously, was left that temple unforgiven and rejected of God. It's the glory of God to resist the proud and to lift up those who humble themselves. The Lord told Job in Job chapter 40, in verse 12, he said, Job, I'll look on everyone who is proud to bring them low. God brings them low. The will and the heart and the soul must be subjected to the will and the good pleasure of the Lord if we're going to be accepted of Him. If the Lord doesn't exalt you, you are not exalted. And he will not receive and he will not forgive the proud heart because that heart is full of self-righteousness. Now, that brings us, we've covered this, this little parable here that brings us to this thing we call today the sinner's prayer. You just read the sinner's prayer. That's the only sinner's prayer that I know of that's in the Scripture. You've got other sinners that pray things, but you don't have them that pray as explicitly and as directly as this publican. All right, number one. What do they do today in the sinner's prayer? Let's say, I want you to repeat these words after me, right? Right? Okay, number one, the publican had nobody to lead him in prayer. There wasn't anybody in there saying, Mr. Publican, here's what you do now. We can tell you down. You just repeat after me. He had no one to lead him in prayer. Number two, the publican had no one to convince him that he was a sinner in need of mercy. Number three, how do you pray the sinner's prayer? Well, the Holy Spirit must convict, and the Holy Spirit must convert. A drowning man does not need someone to instruct him on how to call for help. If he's drowning, he'll cry. And if a man is a sinner, he'll cry out to God. And you can't make him a sinner by trying to get him to repeat certain words after you. you can, I can get you in the corner over here and I'd say, I want you to say, I'm a millionaire. You say, I'm a millionaire. If you don't have a million dollars, you're not a millionaire. You're just repeating what I said. And it's the same thing if I say, you say, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. People aren't sinners. I'll tell you what sinners will do. Sinners will seek the Lord. Sinners will cry out to God. Sinners will go where the Word of God is taught in truth. That's what sinners will do. How do you pray the sinner's prayer? Well, the Holy Spirit has to convict and convert us. 
There's not one record in Scripture, not one record in all of Scripture in the 66 books of the Holy Scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 where anyone ever led someone else to repeat words after them to be justified with God. Not one example in all of Scripture. And as I told you some time back, there came a time when the motive for preaching and the motive for teaching and the motive for gathering for worship was shifted from the glory of God to the winning of souls. And pastors became CEOs of congregations and they have to have people coming and they have to have people giving and they have to have people tithing and they have to have something going on five nights a week at the church and they have to uh, usher these little children in here on Sunday morning and get them to make a profession of faith that they'll regret later in their life if they're going to keep that church up. But no longer is the motivation, the glory of God is the winning of souls. And when that's your motivation, you'll go to any measure and you'll take any steps to make that happen. Churches need to increase the number of professions of faith. They need to grow the enrollment of the membership of the local church. And so men began to substitute propositions for the truth of Scripture. And among the propositions used was the so-called sinner's prayer. Repeating words after someone. Repeating words after someone does not make one a sinner, and repeating after words after someone does not make one a Christian. You can't make a person a sinner. You know, the only person that can make a person a sinner is the Holy Spirit. The sinner's prayer is totally unbiblical, totally man-made, and has probably been the instrument, in my opinion, most used to damn the souls of men than any other means that I know of. Let me close by having you note a couple of things. I'll just quote this one. If you want to turn to John chapter 16, that'll help with a little bit of time. And let me, let me read that for you and divide and comment briefly on Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely, after I was turned, I repented. And after I was instructed, then I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I did Bear the reproach of my youth. Now, this is Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 18 and 19. And all he says here, he says that repentance and being convicted was the fruit of something God did for you. I mean, my friends, the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Now, the verb to be gives us a lot of trouble in the English but this should be simple. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's saying something else has to born you again. You don't born yourself. Did you have anything to do with your first birth? You didn't have anything to do with it. And you don't have anything to do with your second birth either. After you are smitten, then you feel guilty. After the Lord deals with you, then you call on him. All right, John chapter 16, 
John chapter 16. I might have said 15. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, it is expedient for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the comforter, the helper, the paracletus is the word. Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if I don't go away, then the comforter won't come. Now, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. Okay? But he says, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he says, he will, number one, reprove. Now, that word is a little mild, really, reprove. The word is a word for convict and convince the world of sin. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts and convinces men that they are sinners in need of a Savior. Number two, he will convict and convince of righteousness. Now, this righteousness here is Christ's personal righteousness. He's going to convince the sinner that Christ has perfect righteousness, and he's the only one that has acceptable righteousness. Therefore, he can be trusted. He will convict the world of righteousness. That's Christ's personal righteousness. Therefore, he can be trusted. And of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me. So this is the sin of unbelief. By the way, the only sin for which a man or woman could be damned is the sin of unbelief. If you die in unbelief, you're damned. But no matter what you have done, the Lord's blood is sufficient if you come to him and believe on him. Of righteousness because I go to my Father. Now what does that mean? Of righteousness because I go to my Father. It's referring, it's referring to his resurrection. I'm going to my Father. My resurrection testifies of who I am and what I've done and that I've told you the truth. And you see me no more. Of judgment. Because the prince of this world is judged. Now, who's the prince of this world? Lucifer is. The devil is the prince of this world. And so what he's saying here is, I have not only freed you from sin, for those of you have, who have your righteousness and your hope in me, I have not only provided a righteousness for you, but I have freed you from the power of the devil, who is the prince of this world world. I came to set free all who have been enslaved by Satan who introduced sin to the human race in the first place. Then he says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, who's the truth? Christ is the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. So what's the Holy Spirit's main ministry? He's going to teach his children about Christ. He's going to teach us about Christ. And he, he, he starts out by showing us that we don't have any righteousness, by showing us that we're sinners, by showing us that we need a Savior. And he gives us faith. He gives us faith by which we believe. 
I'd like to enlarge a little bit more on this. Maybe I'll just just a, a wee bit here, just a minute. He says, He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. The Holy Spirit is an invisible person. He is an invisible being. And the Bible says, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's like the wind. You don't know when the wind's going to blow. You don't know where the wind came from. You don't know how long it's going to be here. You don't know where it's going. He says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, all I hear, I used to hear, I don't hear quite as much of it today as I used to, but all I hear is people talking about Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. He says here that the Holy Spirit will not cause you to speak about Him. That He will cause you to speak about Christ. He will show you about Christ. He will glorify Christ. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, or whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He'll glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. The we're to preach and teach the word of God, of whom the Holy Spirit is the author, of which the Holy Spirit is the author, I should say, and he will move as the wind where and will, when he will, upon whom he will. And he will add to the church the called out ones such as should be saved. It's what it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 41. They that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily. The Lord there, kurios is the, the, the word for the Spirit, added to the church daily such as should be saved. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. <clears throat> My friends, when you found out that you were you, as I have said so many times here over the years, when you found out who you were when you were three or four years old, you had already been a person for several years. You were in your mother's womb for seven to nine months or more. And then you were one year, two years. I doubt most of us knew that we were people before we were three or four years old. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, faith is a what? A gift of God. Is that not right? That means that when you believe, it means the Spirit has already gifted you. And that means that you're alive spiritually. Because a person that's dead in sin cannot express saving faith in Christ. Right? That's what the Bible says. Any more than a, than a person that's never been born can do anything in this world. So you say, well, Brother Sasser, what's the issue of preaching the gospel? Well, here it is. I'm, I'm under the command to teach and preach the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Who's the author of the Word of God? The Spirit is the author of the Word of God. 
And it is the Spirit who takes the Word of God and makes it a powerful tool to give life into dead sinners. And then give them the grace to exercise the fruits of the Spirit once begin with faith and repentance. This man here that came into this temple that Jesus told us about, this man, God, has done something for him. And, and, and Jesus said, this man, not the, not the Pharisee, but the publican that said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said he went down to his house justified. Now, he may not have known he was justified at that point, right? But he found out about it. Just like you didn't know you were a person for several years. But one day you found out you were. Believe me, the Lord will save anyone who calls upon him. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what the Scripture says. I don't have any problem with that. I don't have to go into any kind of rigmarole about explaining that. What I am telling you is that it is the Spirit of God that makes a good person into a sinner. <laughs> and if you think people are sinners, as I've said over the years, you ask them tomorrow morning when you go to work. <laughs> you just ask them. Are you a lost, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner? Well, I mean, I'm not that bad. I mean, yeah. I've done some bad things, but... Well, Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to save good people. If you're a good person, there is no gospel for you. The gospel is for sinners. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to study it. And uh, we ask you to be pleased to give us understanding that we might walk according to it and proclaim it regardless of even sometimes when we don't understand, we know it's true because you said it's true. Help us therefore, O Lord, to be bold and courageous, willing to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth and the way and the life. We thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit who opens the eyes and unstops the ears it removes the veil from sinners that are dead in trespasses and sins. Thank you for our salvation. We pray for those of our flock and those of our friends in other places who are ill. We pray that you will raise them up and you will make yourself known to them in comfort as only you can. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord for his sake. Amen.